Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for, for being here with us this evening. My name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. I'm very excited to welcome everyone back for the latest, uh, the latest class in our series of Imagining uh, King David in the Babylonian Talmud with Rabbi David Silver. Uh, Rabbi Silver is the founder and dean of Drisha. Uh, he's run this organization for over 40 years, and we're thrilled to have the opportunity to be learning with him again this evening. Uh, as as uh, Ranit just pointed out, we also have a few other opportunities to be learning with Rabbi Silber starting up very shortly. Uh, we have our ongoing series on the Abraham narrative on Sunday mornings, as well as a new series that is going to be starting tomorrow night and running throughout December on uh, anger in Kabbalah that's going to be co-taught by Rabbi Silver and Dr. Nathaniel Berman. Uh, you can find information on that at drisha.org slash classes, as well as information on all of the other classes that we're going to be running uh, over this next month. For tonight's class, we are going to be going back a little bit, I think, to some of the material we looked at last week with Masechet Brachot before moving forward to some uh, sugyas in Masecha Megillah. Um, so with all of that said and done, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver and Rabbi Silver, just let me know when you want me okay. to start the screen share for the material. Uh, right now, uh, just the uh, text would be good to put up. Okay, so this, uh, so I, I decided to add two extra classes tonight and next week. Um, because I really think we just to complete what we started and to get a more of a rounded picture of the Bavli's view of David that has emerged from several sugyot. Um, before we jump into the main text of this week, which is the Gemara in the second Megillah, just wanted to return for a moment to what we saw last week in Brachot. The sugi in Brachot actually Brachot being traditionally the first of the tractates. And uh, it talks there about the context being the time that one can recite Shema in the morning. And according to one view, the time of Shema has a particular time. The Torah says when you wake up. When you get up in the morning and um, the Gemara um, has a view that you can recite the Shema for the first quarter of the day, what they call three hours, the perfect day being 12 hours or three hours, because that's when kings get up. Kings get up, kings are still in bed for three hours, basically. And in that context, the Gemara speaks about David, um, and that David would get up well before the dawn. According to one view, he was basically up all night. And according to another view, he would get up at midnight. And there are different opinions what he would do at night. One is he would sing, he would compose or sing psalms to God. Another view is he would study Torah. The first part of the night would be the study of Torah. And afterwards it would be uh, his composing or singing, playing his musical instruments in praise of God. In the Gemara, he seems to be a little interested in actually his job, namely King of Israel. That's his day job, but his actual concern, as the Gemara describes it, is, um, is uh, the service of God, both through study and especially through prayer and, and song. The Gemara, um, in describing David, says that David um, is contrasted with the other kings. The other kings are sleeping late, and David is up early in the morning, his hands are, are filled with blood, uh, analyzing the blood of women that come to determine if they are permitted to their husbands or not. So, and then if, if he doesn't know the answer, he consults his Rebbe, who is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth being his Rebbe, and Mephibosheth says, yes, did I say the right thing? And Mephibosheth would confirm that with David's intuition about the halacha is actually correct. When you read that Agatha that we saw last week, what is very striking about it is 
the idea of David getting up early, not sleeping late as other kings sleep, but getting up early. The idea that he is very concerned with making sure that husband and wife can live together or, or sleep together. Uh, and that when he has a doubt, he consults Mephibosheth. And when one thinks about those statements in light of what we read in the book of Shuel, and in particular, a story that is central to several of the, Agat of the Agatha that we saw, David and Bathsheba. There, the story begins with David not going to war, staying home for whatever reason, and sleeping in the daytime. David is sleeping all afternoon, and he gets up at twilight. That's when he goes up to the roof, and from the roof, he looks down and sees this beautiful woman. We discussed uh, the actually two of the Agatha that deal with that, who is bathing on the wherever she is, David can see her from the roof. And the Book of Shmuel said, she was purifying herself from her impurity, which presumably sounds like some kind of a mikvah. Perhaps her husband, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah will come home. So that's one story. And Mephibosheth, and maybe we'll have occasion to come back to Mephibosheth, maybe next week, I'm not sure, but Mephibosheth, in the Book of Shmuel, at least, is someone, um, is someone who uh, who uh, David actually mistreats. Mephibosheth being the son of Jonathan, to whom David swore to take care of his family, to protect his family, to show kindness to the family, and on two occasions, David mistreats Mephibosheth. In the first time is when Mephibosheth fails to accompany David who leaves Jerusalem, fleeing from Absalom, and he's met by Mephibosheth's servant, Siva. Says, where is Mephibosheth? Oh, he's staying in Jerusalem. He thinks he's gonna become the king, which on his face is absurd. And David says, okay, the field of Mephibosheth, Saul's field, which I gave to Mephibosheth, I give to you. Then later in the story, when David returns to Jerusalem, Mephibosheth comes to greet him, and David says, why didn't you go with me? Mephibosheth is in a state of mourning. Mephibosheth says, I didn't go with you because I'm lame, I can't walk, which is true. And my servant made it impossible for me to travel. He took all the, all the transport animals with him, purposely leaving me behind. You can do whatever you want to me, but that's the truth. David says, stop talking so much. I've determined to give you half the field back which Mephibosheth says he can keep the whole field. I'm just glad you're home safely. Now those two stories, the second of which is a particular terrible story, and the Bavli actually elsewhere picks up on that story. In more than one place, the famous Bavli says, David said to Mephibosheth, you and Siva shall divide the field. And a voice came down from heaven and said to David, you and your oven ben Nevat will divide the kingship. So the Bavli has an extremely sharp critique of David for a failure to do justice, for a failure to act, his job is to be a judge, and for giving a misjudgment, an unfair judgment, and not only unfair, but treating this person who was lame in an unfair way. And beyond that, he had promised Jonathan, who essentially makes him king, that he, he would take care of, Dave, of, of Jonathan's family. And David swore to do that, he took an oath. So when you read the story in Brachot, Daf Gimel, Daf Dawid, as we did last week, you have to ask yourself the question, what is this Talmudic statement about? That's what we left to do last week. And I think that's why to come back to that for a moment. because so I think that's a very important question in terms of what we're doing in general. What is, what is the Bavli's project, one might say? And this Gemara in Brachot figures in the, it's the very beginning of, of, of the study of the Talmud. You start with Brachot, it's the first tractate. Right smack in the beginning, we have this Agalita about David. And it's always important, I think, to think about the various contexts of everything that we study. One context is the beginning of tractate Brachot. Tractate Brachot begins with the recitation of the Shema. And then after three chapters, it proceeds to 
chapters four and five, which are about prayer. Chapter six is about blessings. Blessings after we eat, blessings before we eat. So the tractate begins with Shema, which essentially the mitzvah of Shema is the study of Torah. It's the daily study of Torah, morning and evening. And that's how David begins his night. The first half of the night, he would study Torah. The second half of the night is about song and prayer, which of course is the next subject of the second brachot, tefillah. So David is the instantiation of song and prayer and of study. He is in the Talmud Bavli, we've seen this already, a kind of pupil. He's more Talmud than a Rebbe, he is a judge, but he has around him his teachers. The Talmud has rabbinized all of these people, Achitofo and Shimi, Amasa, these are all Avner. They're all engaged in, in kind of Talmudic study and thinking through the details of law. So one context has to do with seeing David as an exemplar of what it means to, to study and what it means to pray. To study for the Bavli means to be a pupil. And David exemplifies prayer as well. And what I maintained is that, what I suggested is that the Bavli, by intentionally recalling these two stories, which for the Bavli are David's two main sins. One is Bathsheba and the other is Mephibosheth, that the Bavli is making a statement in the beginning of the, of the, of the Talmud. What it's saying is, in my view, what it's saying is not, we're saying this to the masses, but wink, wink, we know better. I don't think that's the point of the Bavli. I don't think there are two different audiences in the Bavli that are being addressed differently. I think the Bavli is saying something else to, to all students of the Bavli. We know, and you know, that when you read the book of Shmuel, that David is a very complicated figure. And the book of Samuel does not shy away from describing David often in very negative terms. And that's true, but that's not the only David. Other books of the Bible have a different David. And we intend to, to when we deal with David, in the beginning of Tractate Brachot, which is all about prayer, we intend to present a different kind of David, maybe a kind of idealized David, maybe as we'll see next week, a very complicated David. And that is very much, I would say, I don't want to sound to reduce anything here, but that is what the Talmud Bavli always does. The Talmud Bavli, the whole Bavli, is interested in seeing two sides of an argument. Often it doesn't even determine at the end of the argument who's right and who's wrong or what position we follow. But it's interested in presenting things in a very nuanced way. Issues, life is very complicated and complex and there's typically at least two sides to every issue. So with the very beginning of the Bavli, it chooses someone who, who is central to our prayers. There's nobody more central to our prayers than King David. And the point, I think, of that initial Agadita is we are aware of the other way to read it. We are aware of the book, David, of the book of Samuel. Nonetheless, we have chosen, we are presenting a different David here. We're not saying the other one doesn't exist. We're saying the David that we are creating or imagining in the Talmud Bavli. And the Bavli itself critiques David like crazy. But we, for our purposes in Tractate Brachot, we present you with a different David. And that David is actually a real David. And that's what I suggest at the end of last week, that the point of the book of Shmuel, and one might say the tragedy of David in the book of Shmuel, is that David actually is an extremely sensitive uh, and fair judge, defends the weak, and he sees very clearly when the prophet Nathan says to David, there's a rich man, a poor man, the rich man took the one lamb of the poor man. What do you think of such a thing? And David gets very angry. That person deserves to die. He has no, he has no compassion. And Nathan said, it's you. And the reader of the book of Shmuel understands, of course it's David, but David doesn't see that. The parable objectifies the reality. And then David sees clearly and David has a very good moral instincts. 
The tragedy is what happens when you become king. Kingship can lead to an inability to see oneself and make the, the right judgments that you are perfectly capable of making. So I think that's more in line, in my thinking, that's more in line with the larger project of the, of the Bavli. The Bavli understands that there are many sides to these people. And it's interesting that the Bavli doesn't say that because David did A, B, C, D, and E, we can't sing his songs and we can't use him as central to our, to our, to our liturgy. Sukkah de Zimra is all about David. That's the blessing of Shirei David Abdecha. We're going to praise you with the songs of your servant David. And the Bible is saying at the very beginning, there's another David. We know you know it, and we know it too. And as we've seen in our little study, it takes David to task often and throughout the Talmud Bible. I just wanted to add that to, to be more very clear about what I suggested at the end of last week and about David within the Talmud Bavli in general. That's as far as last week is concerned. As far as this week is concerned, I want to focus in on a Gemarian tractate Megillah. One Sugin Megillah, which plays off a very interesting story. Um, before we start that, are there any uh, comments or questions about, about what I've said till this point? Yes, Rabbi. Um, the the two stories about Ishboshe, the they're very hard to hold. Uh, the person that David goes to as his counselor, it's it's I have to ask, these are the this is the son of, of Jonathan, yes? Yes it is. Jonathan, yes. Mephibosheth, yes. Yes. So we have, have this person that he's very close to and turns to, and then the same person, he, it's very cruel, the, the turning his back because he didn't join him when um, he, uh, he, he left, when he ran from home. It's, it's very hard to look at these two uh, scenarios together. Well, that's true, but that's not, you know, that's not the Bavli's problem. That's what it says in the book of Shmuel. I would say, I think it's even worse than you're suggesting. Because the, the point of the, one of the issues, we can't deal fully with the book of Shmuel because that would take us, and not that it's not worth it, but the problem in that story of Mephibosheth, among other things, yeah. is a problem. It's, the book is essentially about kingship, about authority, about power the dangers of it. The prophet Samuel was against kingship and he had good reasons uh, to be against it. But I think the, what, among other things, what the book is about is at the end of the day, people in power make decisions, not necessarily based on what is right or wrong, but based on the kind of utility. At the end of the day, the servant who comes to David, the so-called servant, Siva, who himself, by the way, has 20 servants. There's something very, the book has a sinister quality to it. The servant who has 20 servants. Siva, when David is running away, Siva comes and brings David all kinds of provisions. Siva is a very wealthy, successful man. David appointed, told Siva, you are the servant now of Mephibosheth. Siva never accepted that. Siva is very useful for David. Mephibosheth brings nothing to the table except a reminder of obligations David took upon himself to his beloved friend, Jonathan. So that's part of the issue. When David says, you and Siva, stop talking so much. You and Siva divide the field. You know, you're, you're making a kind of compromise, but what kind of compromise is it? It's a compromise between what works for me today and, 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 and what is right and between fulfilling an obligation to someone who's no longer alive. And people have short memories. So that's part of the critique in the book. What, what is the basis of decisions that people in power make? And David is the main character in the book. When kings decide, when people are running for office, they make all kinds of promises. When people get into office, they forget many of those promises. So in the case of David, 
So Mephibosheth represents actually, you know, a failing on David's part on many levels. Mm-hmm. And including the fact that he's lame is not a small point in the book. In, in those days, at least, someone who's lame can't really travel, can't get around, can't be on the battlefield. And those are the people we have to protect, actually. And that's what the text calls Tzedakah or Mishpat. Tzedakah or Mishpat in the Bible means protecting the people on the margins. And that's what a king is supposed to do. And David's failure to do that is a searing indictment of David in the book of Shmuel. It has nothing to do with the Bavli. The Bavli is well aware of it, obviously. But So that's a very interesting story, a very important story. And the Bavli actually makes the amazing statement, you know, when David said, divide the field, the voice came down from heaven, divide the kingship. Mm. That's a very powerful indictment. Okay, let's pick up now with tonight's uh, Gemara, which is uh, the Gemara in Megillah. Now, the, the context over here is the following. The context uh, is the Gemara in Megillah is very unusual. We don't have this in the entire Babylonian Talmud. And that is an extended commentary on, on, the, on, on, on the Megillah itself. Within Tractate Megillah, we have it. several pages, several dapim, which essentially go through the Megillah and they go, not if not verse by verse, they basically go through the verses, if not every single one. And so it goes on for page after page. This appears no other place in the Bible. Within the context of going through verse by verse in the Megillah, there's the following statement. And the statement is that there were X number of prophets in Israel, and there were seven women who were who were also prophets or prophetesses. So there was the seven of them. A couple of them, the Bible says, were actually prophets. prophets. Miriam Hanaviah. Miriam is one of the seven. Miriam the prophet. Miriam Hanaviah. Devorah. Udvarai Ishanubiyah, Devorah was a prophet. Chulda, in the book of Jeremiah, she's a prophet. So these are prophets. And there are additional four that doesn't say they're prophets, but the Talmud Bible, he suggests that they are in fact prophets. So one of the seven is Abigail, Abigail. And we have it, we have before you on the screen the text over here from Megillah, 14a. So I will read the, let's see. Avigail, the Hebrew is Avigail Dichtiv. Voyahi rochevet ha-chamar, yoredet beseiter ha-har. Beseiter ha-har. So Abigail, well, the story is the following story. Um, chapter 25 of Samuel. So chapter 25 of Samuel is the story of Naval. Chapter 25 of Samuel comes in between chapter 24 and chapter 26. Chapter 24 and 26 are very interesting chapters because in point of fact, it actually starts in 23b and chapter 24 are parallel to Samuel chapter 26. They have essentially parallel stories in each of those two chapters chapter 24 and chapter 26, David is pursued by Saul. Saul wants to kill David. And in each of those two chapters, David has an opportunity to kill Saul, both in chapter 24 and in 26. They're parallel stories. In 24, it's when Saul enters the cave and David tears his coat, doesn't kill him. And in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, it's when David goes to Saul's camp at night. He knows where Saul is, 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 is to be found. And he goes with one of his uh, warriors, Abishai. And they're all sound asleep in the camp. And David has an opportunity to kill Saul. Abishai wants to kill him. David says, don't do it. And instead, they take a, his spear and, and a jug of water. And David stands off in a distance and yells out to Avner, why aren't you protecting your king? And each of those two stories, at the end of the story, Saul speaks to David, David responds to Saul. So chapter 24 and 26 are parallel stories. In each case, 
David refrains from killing Saul. David doesn't want to kill the king, refuses to kill the king. That's the parallel of 24 and 26. 24 and 26 are parallel stories. Question for the student of Shmuel is, why does the book include both stories? There seems to be some redundancy. What do we make of that, etc.? But one interesting feature of 24 and 26 is that they bookend chapter 25. By having two parallel stories, it allows us to focus on chapter 25. Now, chapter 25 is one of the great chapters in the book of Shmuel, of which there are many great chapters. But 25 is the following story. So actually, we have the text of Samuel chapter 25. There we are, right. So I'll briefly, uh, I'll briefly just um, describe what's in chapter 25. It begins with the death of Samuel. And there is, in the second verse, there was a man in Ma'on. It's a very wealthy man. He's many animals. His name was Naval. So we can just scroll, scroll down, you'll see it. Uh, he was shearing the sheep. Shearing the sheep in the Bible is the time when you reckon, realize your prophets. The man's name was Naval. The wife is Abigail. Woman was intelligent and beautiful. The man from descendant of Kalev was a hard man and an evil doer. He's a bad guy. This is this couple. David was in the wilderness. He hears Naval is shearing his sheep. Remember, David is running away from Saul. David dispatches 10 men. When you go to Naval, greet him in my name. Say to him, Green to you. The word shalom appears three times. You know, he says, your shepherds have been in the field. They've been with us in the field. David at this point has 600 men with him, 600 soldiers. We did not harm your men. Nothing was missing all the time they were in the Carmel. If you don't believe me, ask, you can ask your men if we were not helpful to them. We are basically protecting them. That's what David says. We've been protecting you, haven't harmed anybody. So therefore, please give your servants and your son, David, David calls himself his son, whatever you can. And he sends 10 men to collect whatever they can. In other words, Naval was very wealthy. David's been protecting him, whether Naval knows it or not. <laughs> so David says, and David needs food for his army. David says, look, Peace, peace, peace. I'm your son. And David's young men went and delivered the message. And Naval responds in verse number 10. Me David and Ben Yisha. Who is this guy? Who is David? Nowadays, he says, many slaves, mit partsim. Here they translate, who run away from their masters. That I think is not a correct. Mit partsim, it's sort of, so hit parades in modern Hebrew is to act, who act, who act inappropriately, who cross the boundaries, who reject the authority of their masters. It's not clear what the master is, is the master Naval himself? Who are you, you little punk asking me for stuff? Or does it mean Saul? David is mid parades with his master, who's Saul. In which case Naval is saying, you see, I'm gonna help you out. Saul's the king, you're a rebel against the king. Should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I slaughtered for my own shearers and give them to men who come from I don't know where? I don't know, just forget about it, I'm not giving you anything. That's the answer. So he rejects David's men. He's not giving David anything. He insults David to boot. This is the background to the story. David's men go back home and they tell David what happened. <clears throat> and this is David's response. Beginning in verse 13, he says to his men, Put on your swords. And each man put on his sword. And David put on his sword. And 400 men followed David. 200 remained back in the camp. So David is setting out to Naval's plantation with the intention, we'll see, of killing everybody on the plantation, not just Naval. Notice by the way, that the word cherev appears three times in verse number 13, <coughs> in contrast to the word 
to the word shalom that appeared three times earlier. David's greeting of peace, atah shalom, beitcha shalom, shalom. Meanwhile, and here we come to our story. One of Naval's young men told Abigail. So listen, he says to Abigail, tells Abigail what has happened, Abigail. He says in verse 15, the men were very friendly to us. They never harmed us. We didn't miss anything all the time. They were helping us. They were protecting us. Now we move to verse 16. So he says to her, and they were with us by the day and the night and protected us. Consider what to do, says this young guy to Abigail, for harm threatens our master and all his household. He is such a nasty fellow. No one can speak to him. He's referring to Abigail's husband, Naval. You better do something about it because David's going to come with his army. He's going to kill everybody here. So Abigail gathers quickly. She takes all kinds of provisions. And in verse 19, she says to the young man, go ahead of me, I'll follow you. Keep reading, 19. She did not tell her husband, Naval. Okay, so Abigail is going to try to save the day here. David's coming with his 400 men. The number 400 men is not an accident. Because in the Bible, there's somebody else who has 400 men he travels with. His name is Esau. Esau. And Esau, what did, what, did, what did Isaac say to his son Esau when he gave him a so-called blessing? You live by the sword. And the word sword appears here three times, David with his 400 men. It's not the only place in the book of Shmuel that David is presented as a kind of Esau figure. And Esau is, Esau is an Edom is red, and David is red, Admoni. So there's a David Ace of connection over here in this text. And now we have David speaking. So now we have in verse number 20. That's where Gemara is going to start. She was riding on the ass and going down a trail on the hill. The translator here is trail on the hill. The Hebrew is Yoredet Beseter Ahar, Seter. Now the word Seter means that which is hidden, and this star is hidden. So she's going down the Seter Hahar, and that's what the Gemara is gonna begin with. The, the, the presumed context is that Abigail is a prophet. We'll see what kind of prophet she is, but she's about to confront David. Her mission, which she has taken upon herself, is to prevent David from massacring everybody on the plantation. Everybody on the, David intends to kill everybody on the plantation. If you look at verse 21 for a moment, there's something interesting about verse 21 for students of the book of Shmuel. Now David had been saying, it was all for nothing that I protected that fellow's possessions in the wilderness. And that nothing he owned is missing. He has paid me back evil for good. That's actually an extremely interesting verse in the context of the book of Shuel, which is not obvious, but I will tell you what it is. In the book of Shuel, actually, in which David is the main character, this is a point that Alter, Robert Alter notes, not about this verse, but in general. Um, it's very hard to know in the book of Shmuel, when David does something, what his motive is. It's typically unclear what the motive is. Is it the right thing to do? Is it politically expedient? Where is it coming from? What are David's intentions? What are David's motives? David is what Walter calls a kind of opaque character. Saul is clear. The text tells us what Saul is thinking. Transparent character. But David is opaque. Generally speaking, the text never tells us about David's thinking. This verse is actually an exception to the rule. David said, it was all for nothing that I protected that fellow's possessions in the wilderness and nothing he owned is missing. So David says, we were very good to this guy. We protected him and we didn't take anything by force either. You know, I realized that was for nothing. And that's a rather striking statement because the suggestion is that David is doing it, protecting this person 
for, for what he hopes will be some kind of personal gain or gain for his people. And that's something which is unusual in the book of Shmuel. So the chapter already presents David to us as somewhat problematic. Sounds more like protection money. We've been protecting you. From whom are you protecting me? Well, from all your external enemies and also from me. That's what David says. We wouldn't take anything of his. And that was for nothing. He has paid me back evil for good. Now the next verse, may God do thus and more to the enemies if by the light of morning I leave a single male of his. The point over here is, can't get to all the, everything in the chapter, means that David intends to kill all the men. That's his intention. His 400 men in plan, as the young man said to Abigail, he's gonna kill all of us. And that is David's intention. And that is of course, highly problematic. And remember, that chapter 25 is situated between chapters 24 and 26, which are all about David not killing somebody. He has the opportunity to do so. And the somebody is Saul who wants to kill him. So you might think he's, he has a legitimate right to do it. He refrains from doing it. Over here, in the case of Naval, David's response seems exaggerated. because Naval doesn't really have an obligation to give anything to David. Nabal might be a miserly, stingy, bad guy, but does he really have to support David? And remember that just a couple of chapters earlier, the last guy who supported David, the high priest of Nov, one of the Talmud Babu's favorite stories, he ended up dead with all his men. So supporting David is not without potential consequence, but that's David's intention. And now, the heroine of the story, the hero, Abigail, her mission is clear. She wants to save the plantation. She wants to save the people. That's why she's going out alone, not telling the husband, takes provisions. Naval didn't want to give his food to David and she takes a lot of provision without the husband's consent or knowledge. And now she's going to try to save, she's going to try to save uh, the plantation. So now let's take a look at the text from Tractate Megillah 14a. Do we have that in front of us? What happened to Michael? We lost him here? Uh, yep, sorry, just uh, I'll be back in 14a. Megillah 14a we need at this point. Now we jump to 14a. Abigail was a prophetess, as it is written. I'll read the English. She wrote on the donkey and came down by the covert of the mountain, Seterahar, says the Gemara. Why does it say Seterahar? It should have said from the mountain, Minahar me by the way. What's, what's the Seter? The Gemara answers, Rabbi Bar Shmuel said, in her attempt to prevent David from killing her husband Naval, and I would add killing everybody else, she came to David and questioned him on account of menstrual blood that comes from the hidden parts, starim, of her body. She took a blood-stained cloth and showed it to him, asking him to rule on her status, whether or not she was ritually impure as a menstruating woman. Peseta. Now, the point is what the Gemara picks up on. When you're studying the Gemara, or anything for that matter, but certainly the text that we study, we have to remember that a word has many different possible suggestions, many different possible resonances. The word Seter actually appears in the Torah in, 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 a, in the beginning of the book of Bamidbar and it talks about the Sota. The Sota is someone whom the husband suspects is guilty of adultery, and, but he doesn't know for sure. And the language of the Torah is v'nistara v'hinitma. She's nistara. She acts in stealth, in private, in secret. And here we have somebody who leaves the husband, doesn't tell the husband, is encountering another man. So the Gemara picks up on something about the word Satan over here. In the Chumash, it's a, some kind of liaison. It may be a liaison over here. Her motive is clear. She wants to save her baby, the husband, but certainly the people on the plantation. But Seder here 
is she goes to him with a so-called question about blood. And it recalls the Gemara and Brachot that we saw when David said about himself, he's busy every morning at looking at the blood of women that come to him and asking him, are they, are they, permit, are they permitted to sleep with their husbands or not? And here the Gemara picks up on the same thing. Here's Baseta. She said, she, he said to her, one does not examine bloodstained cloths at night. It means it's hard to see it. You're showing me this stuff at night, I can't really tell. And she said to him, I'm reading the English over here. He was in the Are cases of capital law tried at night? The rule is that the Sanhedrin doesn't meet at night to try to try capital cases or even to begin non-capital cases. The court is in the daytime. So she says, you're passing judgment on, on my husband, Naval, but the same way that the nighttime, you say you can't give me an answer about the blood because you can't make a decision at night for other reasons, you can't really see well at night. Well, but the halacha is, are cases of capital law he must have judged my husband guilty of some crime and you're going to execute him. Is, but, is, but do we do this at night? This is the Gemara talking its language. That's what Abigail says to David. And David says to her, David says, your husband is a rebel against the throne. He said, there's no need to try him. Since he's a rebel against, someone asked that question. I think it was Judy that asked the question a couple of weeks ago. Does a Mori B'malchut need a trial or not? This Gemara says, no. David says, what are you talking about? We don't need a trial. He's a rebel against the king. I'm going to execute him for being a rebel against the king. Abigail said to him, and Abigail says to him, the English is, you lack the authority to act in this manner. You're literally, your seal has not yet spread across the world. In other words, you're not king. Kings often the coins of the of the realm have the king's picture on it. Even our coins in the states have often pictures of presidents or whatever. And so she says to him, "You you are not the king." That's what the, the, you can't judge him as a mori b'malchut because there's no malchut. You're not a king yet. You're not authorized to do that. That's the, that's the discussion. David at the bottom says, David accepted her word and says, blessed, blessed be you. You have kept me this day from coming bidamim in blood. We'll get back to that in a minute. But let's stop for a second and ask one question. There's several questions here one can ask. But what is actually, what is at stake over here? What is she saying to him? David sees himself as king. And the truth of the matter is, that at this point in the book of Samuel, we could argue David de facto is the king. In chapter 23, the city of Keilah was saved by David. Saul does nothing. Saul does no fighting till the last battle in which he dies. He spends all his time chasing after David. David is defending the people. <laughs> David is protecting the people. That's what kings do. And when you protect the people and fight for the people, in David's head, you're entitled to tax the people. One might say, if you represent the people, no representation without taxation. That's David's thinking. So it's, he is the king de facto. Abigail says to him, you may be de facto the king, but you're not officially the king yet. Saul is still the king. So you are, in fact, not the king. And the truth of it, that that's what lies in David's anger against Naval and Naval's refusal to support David not that the text suggests Naval is a good guy, he's a bad guy. That doesn't mean he's wrong. At least we can understand why he might not want to support David, as I said earlier. So that's what's at stake over here. So what she's saying to him is, you're not the king yet, you have no right to judge. That's the first thing she says. Now she says other things in the text of Samuel. She makes another point in the text of Samuel. You have no right to take the law into your own hands. 
was something that David understood in chapter 24 and 26 when it came to Saul. But when it comes to Naval, David seems to have no, 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 no restraint and, 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 no, and, and no constraints outside of Abigail. And she comes to stop him. You don't want, and David says to her, you are blessed, he says, you have kept me this day, me bobidamim. Now, damim is blood, but the Gemara now will pick up on the word damim, because damim is a plural of the word dam. Blood in, in biblical Hebrew is dam. But what is damim? You have stopped me from coming in blood. The Gemara says damim, tati mashma, that implies twice. Why did she say, use the word dam twice? Now the Gemara says, this teaches us that Abigail revealed her thigh. It's a euphemism here. He lusted after her. He went three parsons, but a long distance by the fire of his desire. He said to her, listen to me. Listen means consent to sleep with me. And Abigail says to him, let this not be a stumbling block for you. This, let this not be a stumbling block. The Gemara says, wait, well, this shouldn't be a stumbling block. Inference is something else will be a stumbling block. What is that referring to? The incident involving Bathsheba. And in the end, this is what was. Indeed, he stumbled with Bathsheba. So that shows she's a prophet. Because she predicts what's going to happen in the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, let's just reflect upon this text of the Bible for a moment. Because it actually strikes me as very much in keeping with other things we've seen about the picture of David in the Bible. Then I'll get to the, I think, the deeper point of the story. David in the Bavli is somebody who's very passionate. And the fact of the matter is, passion can play out in many different ways. He is a person in the Bavli who not only gets involved with Bathsheba, but he has 400 children from women that he took in, 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 in war, Yifatoah. He has 400 Yifatoahs, 400, on top of the 18 wives. So over here, the point over here is on one hand, David is, uh, David is interested in this beautiful woman in, in, in Abigail. And she prevents him, she stops him from doing sinning twice. She prevents him from sinning in the story of Naval, and she prevents him from sinning with, with Abigail herself, who's married to Naval. Now the Gemara continues. Let's just read a little bit more, and we'll come to, I think, the deeper point here. She said to him, she's still talking him out of killing Naval. She says, she says to David, the soul of my Lord shall be bound up in the bond of life. And when she parted to him, she said, the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord. God shall deal well with you. Remember your handmaid. She says to him, remember me. The Gemara comments, what do you mean remember me? She's talked David out of killing Nabal. And by the way, the text in the Bavli doesn't, picks up on a particular aspect. It doesn't get to the main point of her speech, which is, it's an amazing speech, which is, I support you. Someday you're going to be the king. I support you, but don't do this thing. This, this will be very, will look very bad on your, on your resume. And more importantly, it's not in your own self-interest to do this. These are not the wars you want to fight against your own people. My husband is a bad guy, she says. He's a disgusting person. I know him better than you. He's a bad guy. But don't do this thing. It's not in your own self-interest. That's Abigail's argument with David. The Gemara adds on the other piece of it, which is the romantic piece. And she's, she picks up on that as well. Let me just add before we get to the but a main point I want to make, that in the book of Samuel, there's, something, there's a, a, a genre in the book of Samuel called the wise woman. There are three stories in the book of Samuel that talk about the wise woman. Abigail was called wise. She's very intelligent. And there are two other stories in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 2 Samuel chapter 20 about wise women. The wise woman of Tekoa and the wise woman of Abel Mechola. 
and Abigail, and they have something in common. The wise women of the book of Samuel are women who are able to save, save, save lives. Their concern is to save life. That's the wise woman. And Abigail is totally in this. She's going to do what she's got to do to save life. She's going to talk him out of it. She's going to bring in provisions. There's a romantic element over here. And when she leaves David, God should bless you. Remember your handmaid. Now let's finish this up over here and I'll make one last comment and take your comments and questions. But Nachman said, this explains a folk saying, a woman is engaged in conversation. She also holds the spindle. Means she's doing X, she's thinking about Y. And the point is that in the story, when Abigail returns home, and this is very interesting, in the story, she comes back home and she says nothing to Naval. Naval is drinking like crazy. And she waits until the morning, he has a hangover. And then she tells him what happened. I gave away a lot of the whole story. David was going to kill you. I gave away a lot of your possessions to David. And when he hears that, he goes into cardiac arrest. 10 days later, he dies. The end of chapter 25 is when David heard that Naval had died, David said, thank God who avenged David of David's enemies. And he sends a little party to Abigail. King David summons you. And the text says, her stuff's already packed. All the bags are packed and ready to go. So that's what the Gemara picks up on over here. Remember me, she says. Someday we're going to get together, the two of us. And what's interesting is in the book of Samuel, every single time it mentions Abigail, mentions her three or four more times, she's always called the same. Abigail, the wife of Naval the Carmelite, it never calls her David's wife. It always refers to her as Naval's wife. So there's something about the story, and that's what the Gemara is picking up on. The story of David and Bathsheba, and the story of Ab Ab Abigail and David aren't that different. And actually, one can wonder whether the death of Naval is simply a divine punishment for Naval. It may be a divine punishment, but was it set up by, by Abigail, who tells him this terrible news when he's, when he's moving out of the, you know, when he's at a stage of hangover, maybe a stage of vulnerability. So one can only wonder whether Abigail is responsible for the death of Naval. She can't stand the guy, that's for sure. She says herself. So I think the story leaves it very open. But what is the point of, for our purposes, what is the point of the story over here? Because the, this is, the sessions here are about King David. The image of David in the Babylonian Talmud. And they're picking up on something. They're focusing on Abigail. They're tying it to the story of Bathsheba. They're suggesting, I think, which I think is true, that somehow she's really thinking about David when she can get rid of her husband in some form or another. But what is the point about the story? And she's saving lives. She does it to save, and she saves the people. But I think the point of the story is the following. And that is, it's not a critique of Abigail. I don't believe it's a critique of Abigail in the Bible. I don't think it's a critique of Abigail even in the book of Shmuel. You do what you gotta do in this world. She's gotta figure out a way to save her people. And the fact of the matter is, that the way she figures she can save her people is by appealing to, to David as David is. This romantic element, me and you will get together. In fact, the fact of the matter is, and I didn't mention this earlier, that when she first meets David, she bows down, prostrates herself, and she says to David, it's all my fault. The sin is my sin. But that she means, if you had come to me in the first place, you'd have all the provisions you want. You're negotiating with the wrong person. Subtext, I'm actually in charge of this plantation. I'm able to maneuver things around to help you. Don't do anything stupid. Bide your time. And someday the two of us will get together. And the point of the Bavli, I think here, and this is consonant with everything else we've seen in the Bavli, 
On one hand, the bottom line is David does not kill Nabal. David is spared. David says, thank God you stopped me. I would have done it. Thank God you stopped me. But in point of fact, if she hadn't come, one can only imagine what, what might have happened. And that the fact that you appeal to David in this way by understanding David to, to the end, maybe that's part of being a prophet, it's actually understanding to whom you speak, what the possibilities are. The one to whom she speaks, you're somebody, she's saying in effect in the Bible, who's perfectly capable of killing someone and taking their life. That's who you are. That's what she's saying. It didn't happen this time because I stopped you. It might have happened. You'd be perfectly happy to kill my husband and take me. But you know what? It's not necessary to do that because it, it, can, it can work out in a better way without you killing people. And it's bad for the resume. But she understands this man to the end. And I think that's part and parcel. So the Bible is about it's about David, this particular, I mean, the context is Abigail, about the female prophetesses who have some insight. But it goes, I think, very nicely with the picture that the Bible wants to present us of David, which on one hand, he's a person who's capable, great passion, great energy, and he's capable of doing all kinds of things. He has to find himself, he has to put himself in, in a situation where he's able to restrain himself. In the book of Shmuel, he is able to do that on occasion because he has a prophet inside his court. That's David's kingship. David is an autonomous king with a prophet. In the case of Abigail, what the Gemara is saying is he has, also has a prophet in his court, not a prophet that he hired, but a prophet who comes to him, comes to him, comes to him in stealth, comes to him in secret, comes to him in a way which for the Chumash is actually very problematic. The Sota who saves him actually is what it comes down to. The betrayer of the husband who does so to save people's lives. And again, it casts, I think, a very interesting shadow, no pun intended, on the character of David in the Bible. That's what I have to say for this week. I'll take your comments or questions. Next week, we'll look at a very, I think, a other side of David, very positive side of David, which picks up on something that I think many people have missed to say the book of Shmuel, but something that's actually, in my view, central to a good understanding of the book of Shmuel. I'm very much looking forward to next week's uh, session. Now, if people have comments or questions, I will happy to try to uh, respond. Rabbi Silver? Yes. So it's so now I, it sounds like this is why this story is in Megillah because now the way you paint it, she sounds just like Esther. Right. The, the women in yes, it's very it's right. Esther is about. It's a very no. good point. Esther Esther is someone who understands. Uh, let me just the story of Esther actually is about the way it's presented is someone who initially doesn't want to get involved. In other words, Mordechai says to Esther, you have to save the Jewish people. It's going to be massacred. Look, what can I do? She says, I can't speak to the king. He didn't summon me. Can't just walk in there. It's against the law. It's against the rules of the court. So he has to convince her to do the right thing. But when, he can, when she's convinced that this is the right thing for her to do, what's interesting about Esther is she doesn't listen to Mordechai in terms of what, he, what, what she spoke. Mordechai says, go, 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 and plead, go and beg the king for your people. She doesn't do that. She understands Achashverosh better than Mordechai does. That's a hopeless, to, 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 talk, to talk ethics, <laughs> to talk what's right or wrong to this guy is a waste of time. Because it's all about himself, actually. The only way to get to him, to get ethics, to get right and wrong, the only way to have any kind of leverage over him is to convince him it's not in his own self-interest because Haman's the real enemy. We have a common enemy. And that's the only way to deal with, with, with Achashverosh. So in that sense, I think it's very much the case. It's a kind of insight that, that these women have into the protagonists, into the, into the power structure. And uh, yeah, there's also an element of self-sacrifice in each case or self-abasement because whatever Abigail is thinking, 
we don't know what she's thinking actually. Maybe she's happy to go with David, maybe she's not. Mm-hmm. But she's endangering herself and she's doing it not to save the husband for whom she couldn't care less, but all these other people who are gonna be collateral damage. So I think your point is very well taken. Mm-hmm. And in general, I would say that the Agalatot, part of the part of my goal is to demonstrate that the Bavli actually, first of all, the Agalata is is as nuanced as the rest of the Talmud Bavli is all about nuance. It's about seeing the other side, it's realizing things are very complicated. And um, it also is functioning, and that's one of the main points I'm trying to make, the Agalatot function as a kind of commentary on the text. They're picking up on, it's not, we don't take it literally, but we, it's picking up on something that's very real in the text. And, uh, and they have incredibly sensitive readers. And even if the details may not seem to be the so-called pshat, but the idea they have is the pshat actually. It's very true, it's very correct. And they, have a, they understand the larger context of the book. So yes, I, it's a good point about Esther and, and Abigail. Thank you for that. Rabbi Silver, you, are, you seem to be putting her in such a good light. In fact, she's like Eshet Potiphar in a sense, rather than this nobility. It just doesn't seem, you know. Well, I, would say so, I would say she's like somebody else. I would say she's like uh, Yael, Eshet Chevra Keni. Yael in the Talmud is, she's, she's betraying the husband. The husband is, has an alliance with the Canaanite king. She betrays the husband. Her behavior in the way the Gemara understands it is, is highly problematic. That's the example of Avero Lishma. And that's actually a very interesting idea that sometimes it's necessary, if there's a critique, sometimes it's necessary to behave a certain way which you wouldn't normally do, but you have a higher goal in mind. That's the story, that's the Talmudic understanding of Yael. She misbehaves by any norm, normative standard but it's necessary. In, in war, it becomes necessary. And when you're fighting a war, people do all kinds of things in war that are not wrong to do in that context, but outside of war, they're highly problematic. So I would put it in those terms. I do think, it's not what I think, it's not important what I think, but my understanding of what they're trying to teach us is, I don't see it as a critique of Abigail. I see it more as, what it, what's necessary for her to do given the circumstance. So it's true that what she's doing is a kind of sota behavior, which the Torah looks down upon, but there are situations in life where you've got no choice. I mean, the spy networks used to work that way before do all kinds of stuff, but there's a higher purpose is to save people and to protect people, etc. So it's always, it's a, it's a tricky business. Rabbi? Um, there's a, there are midrashim um, uh, uh, discussing uh, Yael um, in, in Devorah, and one of them specifically says, uh, now listen to me, I'm going to tell you a sod. Um, Yael is Esther. Esther is a reincarnation of Yael. And it's this Gilgal that it's just a throwaway sentence, but of course, under your theory, which is that the Midrashists and the Agadot are very close, really close readers, almost at the shot level. Now I actually understand that even better because of what you just explained, which is if in fact the Gemara is saying that Yael is, a, that Esther is a Gilgal of Yael, then it's going backwards and saying, look what Yael did. It was Avera Lishma. Esther had to commit the, the Averalishma, and of course right. it all goes back to Samuel, and Abigail did it too, but, but they specifically say, right. and it's, it's wild, they say that um, Esther is a Gilgal of Yael. That is true, and, that, and the, um, the point of the Talmud, by the way, when it comes to Esther, the Talmud claims that Esther is married to Mordechai. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a betrayal of the husband as well. So there are all kinds of interesting parallels. But I guess the larger point I wanted to make is, it's really about David. It's a, I think a critique of David over here, which is already found in the book of Shmuel, but when people behave a certain, about to do certain things, then other people have to step up and prevent it, even when it means acting in a way that doesn't accord with the best part of yourself. Because what choice do you have? You can't let David kill everybody at the plantation. It's not their fault, as the young man said, your husband's a bad guy, and 
they're angry at us and they have some cause perhaps, but what are we gonna do? Can you help us out? And she does. And she well, does things that normally speaking would not be seen as acceptable. But Isn't that what heroism is all about? I mean, if it was an easy choice and you could make the choice without a loss to yourself, what's the big deal? But I mean, the essence of the heroism, whether it's a male or a female hero, is that taking the act that saves the people or does this amazing, important thing, Esther saved um, the Jews, the two million Jews uh, in Persia, Abigail uh, uh, saved uh, the entire plantation, um, Yael saved B'nai Israel from a, from a Hitler. I mean, these, if it was easy, they wouldn't be heroines. And so the, this really, their behavior, I would suggest has to, if they're heroic, and in this case, if they're prophetesses, I mean, it has to take them to the brink of of, of death, of the end of their life as they know it. And, right, and they, so it's about, you know, it's, it's also about, it's about making choices as well. Seeing yep. all sides to it and making a choice, understanding that every choice we make has another side to it, but trying to make the right choice at the right time. Yep. Uh, Even at great danger. Yeah, sure, certainly. Um, all right, so we'll stop here then. And uh, I did want to mention what uh, Michael mentioned earlier that uh, the next four months, Wednesday nights, there's a class which is run by Rabbi, by Dr. Nathaniel Berman. We've, we've co-taught over the last two years. He's a great expert on the, uh, on the, on the Zohar. He sort of leads the class and I co-teach it in the sense that I try to figure out what did the Zohar imagine is actually the Pshat and the, it's always a commentary on the Chumash basically. What was the Zohar thinking about the Pshat before you jump to all the Kabbalistic stuff that's where I try to contribute. So I find that class very interesting. That's tomorrow night. Anyway, thank you. And next week, we'll have the last session. We'll look at the track in the uh, story in Psachim about the famous Gemara about the end of days where David, where there's a meal and God invites somebody to, uh, to, to lead Berkata Mazon, to lead the benching. And David decides to lead it. Very famous, very beautiful story. And I want to talk about what the Talmudic Agarit is trying to say to us about David. Um, okay, so thank you again. Uh, look forward to meeting you again. Wonderful, thank you, Kazaka Baruch. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Robert.